This is The Dose, The Dose of Positivity, hosted by the one and only Mike Diamond. This is The Dose of Positivity. I'm Mike Diamond, and I'm really excited today to have on an incredible human being, Angie. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Good seeing you. You too. So you, I think I came on your podcast, was it just when the pandemic hit? It was around then, I think right? so. It was back in the beginning for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So let's say, I know you're 28 years sober. Okay. You've had this incredible sober life, but I want you to take it back for me. Where did you grow up? What was life like? And then when, when you hit your rock bottom, what were those moments that made you go, you know what? I need to somehow make this shift or things could get worse. Yeah. Um, So I grew up in Reno. I was a latchkey kid, which basically meant that my mom worked a lot and um, at that I didn't have a dad. So she was working two jobs to support us. But that left me sort of on my own to sort of fend for myself, get myself to school, get myself home, make myself dinner, entertain myself. And uh, because of that, there was definitely a lot of non-supervision and I was in a neighborhood with a lot of kids in the same situation. So for entertainment, we started smoking, drinking, uh, using at a very young age. I was 11 years old when we started experimenting. And from there, I was started missing a lot of school, started committing like little crimes, stealing things. Not that that's little, but just you know, stealing and going down a bad path. But I was still continuing to go to school and, and put on a good front. So my mom didn't necessarily know how bad I was. Uh, finally, at 16, she realized how bad I was. We had some incidents and um, she had been practicing some tough love and decided to have me arrested. And then from there, go straight to rehab. I definitely was not ready at 16 to get sober. I didn't even feel like there was anything wrong with what I was doing. Um, you know, you're 16 years old and I was hanging around people much older and they had their stuff together and they were able to use. So I don't understand why this is a problem for me. Uh, so I, d- I did complete the rehab. It just made me uh, put me around more people to party with uh, also in a similar situation. So that did not clean me up. And I somehow was able to graduate uh, high school and I continued on that same path of drinking, using little criminal activities. But uh, I was now an adult. And so by the time I was 20 years old, I had been working at a car rental place in Reno and they allowed me to rent a car on cash, which was unheard of, but because I was an employee, they'd let me do that. And I had made some new friends over here in Santa Cruz where my best friend had moved. And I decided I'm going to go visit my friends over there. And um, when I, when I did that, I ended up getting in a bit of trouble with this car and with the people and had numerous incidents until finally I completely crashed the car and they took it away from me. At that point, I was like, well, I can't go back to my work. I kept the car too long. I missed all this work. So I might as well just stay in Santa Cruz again. And so I started rebuilding my life back in Santa Cruz. But unbeknownst to me, that car rental place had filed charges on me. Due to the nature of the vehicle, it was above grand larceny, which is a $10,000 limit. And because I worked there, they made it an embezzlement charge. That's how it was viewed. So yeah, so I was facing 10 years in prison at 20 years old. And that for me was 
kind of a big wake up call, but I'll say I was still in denial that I actually had a problem. It was more like, I just have really bad luck. Like, you know, like this isn't happening to anybody else. My luck is terrible. And I uh, went to court. Luckily my grandma bailed me out, but my public defender said, look, we're going to say you have a drug problem. That way you don't have to go to prison. Like this is a means for you not to go do 10 years. And at first I was like, but I don't have a problem. He's like, well, okay, but can you see the bigger picture here? And I was like, oh, yes, I get it. I'm going to say I have a problem. Okay, I can get on board with that. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and so luckily for me, and I didn't know this at the time, but I've done some research since, my judge uh, was in recovery himself, and he was one of the first judges in Reno to actually give drug diversion in, in lieu of prison. Because back then, drugs were like zero tolerance. It was prison. That was your option. So I was very fortunate to land on his uh, courtroom. And that's what he said is a year in, in treatment, three years probation, and pay back that car, which was like $13,000. And so fortunately for me, I found a program that would accept me for a year. It's where my best friend had gone previously. So I knew if it could help her, it could help me. And about two months in, I started working because I couldn't afford it and I couldn't stay there for a year. It wasn't a year long program. And so that that's when I started working and started giving back. And like I had told you prior to the show, it wasn't like the light bulb went on. I was still in very much in denial and thinking that I was there for to get out of prison. I wasn't like the, it wasn't coming on that there was actually an underlying issue that the fact that you're facing 10 years in prison at 20 years old, there might be a problem there. That light bulb still had not come on, but regardless, I kept doing the work and I kept uh, working there. And after a year, the judge said, Hey, that's pretty great. I will, you don't have to be in rehab anymore, but you still have to come see me every six months and you still have that restitution. And so after a year, I was like, well, Everybody I know on the outside, they still drink and use. And, and now it was becoming a little more real as far as like, what am I going to do out there? I don't know that I have the uh, ability to stay sober on my own or even in an environment that would be conducive. So I stayed and kept going back and seeing this judge. I learned every position within the organization. I became the right hand man of the executive director. And I found my passion and purpose for helping others who are like me. Like there was truly like this, this, you know, purpose that was ignited in me. And it's funny because I've always been a person that liked to help people. Like I was always the person like, oh, let me lift up your hair while you throw up. Oh, let me make sure you don't lose your purse when you're too wasted. Like I always liked to help people, but I never knew that it would translate into like this kind of purpose. And so after the end of the three years, I went back to the judge and they wanted to recommend uh, the, the prosecutor another three years because I was unable to pay off that restitution. Because back then, even though there was minimum wage laws, we didn't really pay attention to that. And honestly, I didn't really care as long as I had a roof over my head and some cigarettes. Yeah. Like yeah. I was I was good to go. And so I was thinking, oh, man, probation, another three years. Well, OK, I mean, I can do it. It's not like I can't. But the judge kind of looked at the me and he looked at the prosecutor and he said, do you realize how seldom I actually get to see successes in this courtroom? Like, I do not know what more you could possibly want for this girl. The insurance paid that car off like 
three years ago. I can't even believe that you would suggest giving her more time. Young lady, I am not only wiping away that restitution, I'm wiping away the felonies and any pending charges. You now have a clean slate. Oh, I'm wow. very proud of you. You did the work and, um, you know, it was like being, it was like being pardoned, you know, it was like the yeah. feeling, I never even knew that was possible that that could be done. And, uh, you know, ever since then I'm, I've, well, I've never left <laughs> before then and after then. And uh, I'm here because this is what I love to do. And I've had a new lease on life and I've been making the best of it. That's so amazing. Do you think going back, um, not having that father figure, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Cause you know, the, the, we obviously model behavior that's in us. And like, if we don't have an environment that helps us thrive, and allows us to reach our full potential it's very hard to reach your full potential do you know what i'm saying like you're yeah. not getting good information from the environment you don't have good people modeling excellence or success you're around mm -hmm. people that are doing crazy stuff so you do crazy stuff do you know what i mean and then no one teaches you how to learn and process you know what i'm saying yeah. so do you think like if there was a really steady father role model and then that kind of slowed you down do you think you would have Oh yeah, that and do you think I st I, I believe we're born with an addict and an alcoholic. It's in our gene, but I do feel the environment has a massive effect. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I definitely use that to help perpetuate my addiction. You know, mom, it's your fault because, you know, yeah. I, you didn't give me a dad and you're never here and you're the reason why I am this way. I definitely played the victim of it a lot. Um, I think in retrospect, years later, I looked at the kids who had like a bad dad that would beat them or abuse them or do other things. And I said, <laughs> well, maybe that void was better than the harm that could have happened if there was somebody bad there. So, you know, it's life, how you, you're able to reframe things and look at things differently. But definitely early on, I thought it was a, a why. But as I've reflected, I think maybe I was better off because of that. Yeah. And I love how you said, um, why do you think some of us don't get it? Like I've watched people that their rock bottom is just so insidious and they just they'll die. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's just ignorance? Do you think it's fear? What do you think it is? I think it's fear of change. Uh, you know, then there's an expectation to do better. You know, if I get this right now, what? At least I'm going to stay in this comfortable little hell where I'm like really good at that. So yeah, I think yeah, there's yeah. A, a lot of that that goes with it. And then like now that you've got your own facility, how, so the programs you have 30, 60, 90, how do you do it? How do you break up the facility? What are the programs? So, so all of our people come in through um, our main facility in the Santa Cruz, cause that's where our big uh, detox unit is, our medical staff, that sort of thing. Everybody detoxes there. And if they're doing the 30 day program, then they go to South Lake Tahoe and do their program there. If they're doing the full program, they stay back in Santa Cruz. Because uh, again, that's where the majority of our staff are. So we we kind of separate the populations because we don't want people who want to do the whole program being influenced by those that are only doing the thirty. Mm -hmm. Although I will say we've had we've seen a really positive impact of our detox area. Who people who only signed up for the thirty now want to do the full program because we'll bring them down to the graduations every Friday night and they hear all the benefit that you can get from doing the full thing. Full and yeah, there's a lot of magic to the full program but it's also just like more time and more learning of habits and doing those healthy habits over and over and over before putting yourself back into that world and expecting that that 30 day stint is going to be enough to make you do 
well. And I'm not bashing it. Obviously, I sell it. I stand by it. We believe in it. But anytime you can give yourself like a longer runway, a bigger foundation, the better off you're going to be. Thousand percent. So how'd you get it going then? So I mean, you get that God shot. Did you? Did you? Did you actually? When he gave you that opportunity, because that that's that's the universe working through people. Do you know what I mean? You did the work, and he's like, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna give her a shot. You know what I mean? You because you did the work. It's very yeah. special. Did did that resonate with you? Like, all right, this is it. I know the weight lifted. How did you then have the courage to go? Okay, I'm gonna now do my own facility. What was the first? Because people, for some people, like they're gonna be listening to this and they're gonna be like, well, I get it, but how do I how do I get there? Because no one kind of gives you a a blueprint. Did you, was there a mentor involved? How did you actually have the courage to step into that? So um, definitely, it was when he acknowledged me, and I'm thanking him. He's like you did the work. I'm like, yeah, but you made this possible. And he really like it, the judge I'm talking about made it yeah. solidified for me that I did the work. This didn't just happen. That was three straight years of seeing him every couple months and going back every couple months. So that, that made it very real for me. And with that, I felt sort of like this, um, obligation to do right by him and me because he'd given me this opportunity. And so for me, I had already been working with the executive executive director side by side with him. Like I said, I was his right man, right hand man. And I just stayed there working with him until ultimately he retired. Somebody else stepped in briefly because I was pregnant. I had my baby. I couldn't be there full time. And then when in a couple of years, I went back in and sort of uh, he left and I took over the position. So I sort of inherited it. Um, and and ran it that old program for about 20 years as a nonprofit. And it's only been about seven or eight years that we created Elevate and went in a newer direction. But uh, I, yeah, I inherited it. And, and because of that, and because Andy, he's the original uh, executive director that gave me the shot, I always felt like this is my obligation to carry on his legacy because he ha he was running the program that saved my life. Therefore, it is my obligation to keep that going and I just happen to love it. Like everyone's like, well, do you have a plan B? Like running a rehab is so hard. I'm like, I have no plan B. My, this has always been the plan and not that it's not hard or easy, but I don't want to, I don't want to spend my time thinking of backup plans. Like I'm yeah. all in on this and there is really no magic except, and I think this is a, a situation with like newer generation. There's no like immediate pill. There's not like, Hey, you, you created this widget and now you're a millionaire. I mean, there is that out there, but that's not how this is. This was me coming into work day after day, week after week, year after year, after year, after year, not like seeing the grass is greener over there. I'm going to go over there. Or, oh, I could get a slight promotion. If I go over there, it's just like doing the work every day, not looking for the easy way out and just staying the course. And I think that's where a lot of people, especially the newer generations, you know, they're so enticed to go get rich quick or the quick pill. And so they, they want to leave to go get that, get there quickly without just putting in the time and doing the work. Do you think it's because there's too much information? Like when I when I was growing up, that are coming from Perth, there was just no information. You just had to gather it, and it was more about building rapport and working. Like even when I went to my first meeting, no one took me to a meeting. I walked into a meeting and went to three meetings a day, and I had to open up bars. That's what I was doing until I made enough money to get out of the bar business. It wasn't like oh, I'll go and start a new career. You know what I mean? It was just like you got to go to meetings. Do you think it's because there's just too much and people? 
are enticed with this instant gratification, but they don't realize you can't get 28 years by fast forwarding the clock. It's 28 years. You've got to yeah. be in it for 28 You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think, do you think, as one other thing as well, do, do you think you got that work ethic from your mum? Because she obviously was uh, a hard worker. Yes. So first of all, absolutely. Um, now you just like search for something and you get inundated with ads like don't like where you work. Oh, have, come yeah. work here. How about yeah. that? Like they're targeted nonstop with social media, with Google, with everything like it a thousand percent harder. Like what? we did not have to deal with that. Thank no. God. <laughs> and it did make it easier. Like I, you know, I, I, I was like, where else am I going to go? I don't know. Look at a newspaper ad and try to find some other job. It just wasn't <laughs> a thing. So Good. for sure, that was a huge benefit for me that I, uh, you know, this other gen, this newer generation, they, they have to, you know, combat that. And so, uh, and secondly, yes, the work ethic for sure. Like my mom worked her two jobs uh, and she started working when I was very young. She refused to be on the system. So she was always working nights, weekends. I always knew that. And also my grandma, you know, interesting story. She, same things, threw six kids, continued to work, continued to take care of the family, make their food, get up in the morning, make breakfast and work all day. And she is still working at 93 years old. 93. Like, I'm like, Grandma, you, she's like, I like it. I get out of the house. I get away from your grandpa. Like, she's still working at 93. So, absolutely, that work ethic is in my blood. There's not the like, oh, it's 40 hours. I'm reaching burnout. I need the weekend. It was never like that. It's always just been all in all the time. And I think what you said is really good. Like, I don't think there's such a thing as a, a backup plan or plan B. It's okay to pivot, but you already found your purpose. And I think, I was telling someone the other day, and I wonder if you agree with this. So people get frustrated, but I'm like, well, there's people that go for profit, people, then purpose. Then there's people like yourself that go for purpose, people, then profit, right? Mm -hmm. As long as the purpose is there, get around the right people, you make profit. And I don't try to change people, but don't you feel that if you put anything before purpose, you're just dissatisfied? Do you know what I mean? Yes. A hundred percent. And I'm around entrepreneurs right? all the time who are way more profitable than me and they're not happy people right. because right. they don't have the right people or because they're off purpose. They're like searching exactly. for that purpose at 40 years old. I have all this money, but I don't really know what I want to do with my life where for me, it was always a no brainer. I'm, I'm on my favorite purpose. And so I'm willing to endure whatever I got to do, especially when I built the people like my team who've all been with me, like my executives have all been with me over eight years and I have 18 of them. Some of them have been with me for 23 years. So my people are like right there under purpose because they feel the same way. And then, that's great. you know, profits. Did, did you, <laughs> no, that's amazing. No, did, yeah. There's a really great book um, by Jim Collins and he talks about, you've probably heard the analogy of having the right people on the bus. Yeah. Do you feel he, he likes to put the people on the bus, then find the direction? I'm a little different. I like to know where I'm going and then find the people to help me get there. Do you feel that it's more important to be have the right people on the bus first, then figure out the direction together or have your direction sorted out? I, I personally think you need to have the direction because how yeah. else are you going to have the right people? Like, that's what you I know, think, one of our yeah. core values is purpose driven. Like if my people didn't have the same purpose as me, even though they're real great people, it's not going to be the yeah. same. Whereas we all have the same purpose and we're driving that bus hard. So yeah. I think the purpose is more important, honestly. Yeah, that's what I think. So I think if I always look for purpose, like what are your values? What are your rules? What's your purpose? Okay. What direction we want to go in? Okay. Jump on. 
And then if those rules and values change, it's easy to say, hey, we're not on the same ride here. You, you want to go this direction. I want to go that direction. You know, and then you, you shake hands. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So is yeah. there going, do you, do you want to open up more facilities or, or right now? You're oh, comfortable? Yeah. yeah, you do. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the first goal is to fill our beds. So as you can imagine with rehab, it's not like you get return customers. I mean, you do, you want them to come back to you if they fail, but you're not setting them up, at least we're not, for no, failure. We don't want to bank on that. And so yeah. it's, and it's a constant turnover. They're there for 30 days, 60 days. And so it's like a constant regeneration of new client, new client, new client, new client. And in our atmosphere with Google, not, not there to help us They're you know, what used to work doesn't work anymore. Um, insurance, not wanting to pay for long-term treatment anymore. They only want to, you know, get you through detox, give you a pill and send you to outpatient and tell you you're fixed. So there's a lot of battles that we have and even just generating enough clients to fill the amount of licensed beds that we have. So goal number one, fill our beds. Goal number two, expand so that we can have elevates all over the United States. And by that, I mean like the, the residential programs. We're definitely going to open up more outpatient centers because, again, this is something that um, insurance will be more likely to pay for. And also another pivot that we did and uh, a blessing, you know, in the pandemic that it forced us to quickly put our whole program virtually online. So now we also have virtual outpatients. So we're able to help those people that can't leave their jobs or their lives for 30 or 60 days. I was actually going to ask you, so how how did it, how much did you have to adapt during the pandemic? I mean, obviously, did you have to shut things down or could you still have inpatient? How did you do that? We uh, fortunately were um, an essential business. So we were allowed to stay open. And every day it was like looking at the new rules, the new regulations. Should we quarantine? Should we do this? You know, who can come in? Let's limit the amount of people that are coming in to be the actual amount of people that need to be there. So a lot of my team transition to remote just to lower the capacity of the people on the property. Um, but we just continued, continued, continued to pivot to be able to help more people because we realized at a time that was everybody was going through what they were going through. This was the best possible place they could be. They were allowed to be around community. We we're allowed to keep our gym open because it's part of our essential I, business. I essential, yeah. And that kept people more healthy and, and mentally doing way better than people who were isolated and cut off from the world and just feeding those bad habits or making them worse. I mean, we saw addiction go through the roof oh. because, you know, they're isolated. And, you know, the only things that were considered essential were pot shops and, and liquor stores. So it's it was a very weird time, but we just kept going full force, you know, in the legal parameters and safe parameters. But we helped more than ever. All right. So what are your daily rituals like? you got 28 years. That's no joke. I mean, you started like me, 11 or 12 years old using, you know, you're a miracle to get through mm -hmm. it. No father. You know, I mean, it's a great story. So what are your daily rituals like? So those have molded and, and changed a lot. Now that my kids have moved on to college, I, I took all that extra time and put it into me. So my, my routine is amazing. Like I thought I was going to go through this devastating, who am I? And I kind of did. It was all prior, but since then, so I wake up, I get my coffee. That's first and foremost. I <laughs> meditate for 13 minutes. I don't know why I'm stuck on 13, but I really like that number right now. So I've been doing my meditation. I read 10 pages. 
I go through my to-do list of everything, of my appointments, my meetings, when I'm going to fit in my two different exercises. Um, you know, I plan my whole day out so there's no surprises there. I check my emails, I check my social, make sure there's nobody that needs help and I have to respond to. And I know there's varying opinions on this, but in my line of business, like not not paying attention to emails is just not in my in my my wheelhouse. Uh, handle all that stuff and then hit my day run. And um, so, uh, you know, I'm not, I, I used to not be a morning person, but I don't like to exercise so much in the morning. It's cold and I'm tired and everything else. So exercise comes later. I have a hot sauna. I have a cold plunge. So I try to mix it up all the time with the CrossFit just to keep things like different and exciting and keep my body guessing. It's so amazing. Yeah. Isn't it incredible? Uh, when you when we just get into structure and prioritize our time you know what i'm saying yeah. like i'm up at three i you know read a book a week write meditate twice a day stretch i have to stretch now because just all the just i punished my body for the years by running too much yeah. and just, you know being an addict yeah. but it's crazy how like you go through it and one thing i love what you said it's like if you're getting 13 minutes and it's the right 13 minutes it's perfect there's no competition do you know what I'm yeah. saying? And I think that's great. Yeah. Like you don't do it in the morning, you do it in the evening. I think that's one important thing. You got 28 years because you got your shit together. You don't get 28 years by putting in a dollar into a soda machine and go, oh, so Billy Wonka. So you know what I'm saying? No, it's important to like people to understand. It's not a competition. It's fantastic. You know, you you read those 10 pages, which gets you close to a book a week. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that keeps you consistent. And I think that's really important for people to understand is that it doesn't matter what your routine is as long as you're making empowering choices. Do you know what I'm saying? For you yeah. and not yeah. me, not the guy down the street. And I think that's the worst thing now is we spend too much time in comparison. Yeah. You know, it's like you said, the emails are important. Social media is important. What if you get a message from someone that wants to kill themselves? Right. Oh, I, yeah. don't check, I still check my social media. I just don't spend hours trolling people. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Exactly. Or worry about their lives. You know what I mean. So I think it's great what yep. you just said. It helps people understand. So all right. So there's a kid. She's 12 years old. A girl. She's struggling right now. What do you tell her? Um, 12 years old. Yeah, using that's like like that's we were young. 12 years old. I using. know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, yeah see how we think about it. Now, oh, I know. I, I was like, oh my gosh, that's so young. I remember when my daughter was 12. I was like, oh my God, imagine what I was doing at her age. Like, it's crazy. Their minds are so young and undeveloped and right. peer pressure and, and hormones. It's just like a hard time of life. Um, I would say. Generation, but because it's, yeah. there's so many, like you speak about your addiction like I do. And when I started speaking about it, everyone got offended. Like people got upset. They're like, you shouldn't talk about that stuff. Save it for the rooms. I'm like, no, people need to hear it. Yeah, I'm smoking crack, doing crazy stuff. Um, yeah. What do we what What do we tell a twelve year old? You know, because th you think that's it, you're done. Yeah, I would definitely say uh, reach for help, like whether that's a school counselor or you know ask your parent for help and start working with somebody to help you start working through those issues, and then evaluate who you're hanging around. and And that's really hard at that age to say I'm not going to hang around this group of people because that group of people is your whole life. But trying to involve yourself in more uh, 
healthier groups and activities, which, which is where I was off the rails. I was never part of team sports. I was never part of the healthy groups. I was always part of the groups that were like across the street, smoking cigarettes, making fun of the healthy kids. And that wasn't a good thing. Whereas with my son, like I, we all in on sports all year long, just to create like that positive environment. And I would say if I could do it over, that would be something I would do for myself is get myself involved in very healthy groups and teams and be around those proactive, good kind of kids, as opposed to the ones that we're not going anywhere and heading down a very bad path. So both your kids are in college, right? Uh, well, my daughter lives in uh, Idaho. She works and she's establishing residency because she wants to go to college there next year. And my son is in Baylor and he's yeah, all in on college. So you're 28. So they've never, they've never seen you use. You were sober when you had kids, right? Oh no, never. Oh. <laughs> Which is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's I so tell amazing. them stories and they're like, oh, whatever, mom, you know, they, they're not, they don't care. And not, <laughs> neither of them, neither of them got the gene. They're both, they're not addicts. You know, my daughter did struggle. She definitely struggled a bit. And, uh, you know, I want to say it was a bit of that pre that preacher's daughter syndrome, whereas like my mom is doing this, so I'm going to be a rebellious teenager and do everything anti that, which, and she's my daughter. So of course she's going to end up that way. Uh, so we definitely had some tough years, um, but luckily her foundation was strong and she, you know, worked with a counselor and she's, she's gotten to the other side of all that. And she's doing absolutely phenomenal now. She's 22, you know, so she, it, she figured it out young. She went hard. She put me through it at a very young age, but now she's on the other side. So very happy about that. Congrats. That's awesome. Do you think that was the, uh, a lesson that you need to learn in patience and gratitude as well? Because, you know, it's. Yeah you went through it and now you're facing, you know, not a reflection of yourself, but similar stuff, right? Do you think that- A thousand percent. And, and yeah. even more so like raising somebody, she was very like me in those respects. Like we even laugh, like she did shit. I never told her these stories. And I'm like, it's funny you did that. Cause I did that. And she's like, wow. I didn't even know you did that. And yet I ended up doing a lot of the same things you did. So we, we laugh about that. Like you talk about the gene. It is, it is there. <laughs> Um, but the other thing that she's really taught me, and like you were saying, is gratitude and acceptance. She's also extremely opposite of me. Like I come from old school, tough, you're sick, you still go to work, you're this, you still get up and do that, like buckle up, you know, take accountability. Like I came from like old school, tough love, and she is very soft and, you know, emotional and fragile. And I just have to like really be mindful of granting her her space because if I come at her too hard, it just sends her over the edge. So I have to reframe things. And that has been like so different to raise somebody that's very different than you. It's like, there's no manual to that. And you, and it's a learned thing. So that's, that's been a big test for me on, on just, you know, acceptance, love, uh, you know, all those things you talked about. That's so good. Isn't it special, but because like the one thing I've learned over the years is two things that's changed me. I'm not competitive now. Um, I like to compete, but I'm not competitive in the sense of my wife is nothing like me. Even my, someone said to my wife the other day, your husband really gets up at three in the morning. She goes, yeah, he writes books. He does this. He, I, he just does his thing. He's people sober and she gets up at you know seven, which is different, but I don't force her to get up at three. You know what I mean? Where years ago, yeah. I'd be like, you need to get up when I get up. And it's really nice when we can just accept people for where they're at and match them and then just be unconditional. Like, I love you for who you are. And if you need my help, I'm here. Not trying to force like this whole, like, you've got to do it my way. It's like such a, do you know what I mean? It's really poisonous. Oh, yeah. I, I grew up with that and it just, 
it messes with your mind. Cause you it does because it's just putting you the effect, you know, you're trying to change somebody yeah. else to be like you. I mean, we see that even with recovery. It's like my way or no way. If you don't get sober this way, you're not really sober or you're going to fail. And like, we've had to like really, and it, for me, I, I was accepting of any help because I thought any help is better than no help. Yeah, but yeah. there, I know there's some people that are very close minded on their specific thing because it worked for them. And so they want everybody to do what worked for them because they feel that equals success. And so, you know, it really is like a practice of acceptance of nobody fits in the same box. And we've all yeah. just got to say, hey, at least you're trying. At least you're doing something, at least whatever, and be okay with that because it looks different for everybody. Yeah, it's so true. All right, beautiful. So where can everyone find, oh, is there any books coming out? Like anything you want to promote? What do you got going on? Apart oh, from the man, rehab, I, it's definitely on the horizon. I am definitely looking to write a book this year. I'm just trying to figure out the time. I still have my podcast, which is the Elevate Experience. Yeah. Uh, that that has uh, given me a lot of time. I do have a bunch of like magazines, um, articles and stuff that are coming out as well. Um, well, I, am really the, I am published in the book, The One Habit, uh, as an entrepreneur. I do have a section in that. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, you did a really fantastic interview. Um, I watched it. I don't know if it was on. I can't remember. It was on CB, NBC. It was a really great uh, TV interview. What was that one? With Montel like, Williams? Yeah, Montel. Sorry. I, I couldn't. I just remember. I watched it. It was so great. It was a great interview. Oh, yeah. The Competitive Edge. That was That's amazing. It. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, uh, and I do have one coming out with Kathy Ireland as well. We have a follow-up. Awesome. Um, so there'll be that one coming out too. Yeah. Awesome. I'll give you one um, one tip to help you if you want to get writing a book. Some of my fourth yes. book now. Please. So you know how you start your day with the 10 minutes of uh, reading? Mm -hmm. Try to get in about 10 minutes of writing. And I'll tell you why. Um, it's not, don't worry about what you're going to write about. Just okay. sit down and sit down and say, you could just say, oh, I don't want to do this. Mike's a pain in the ass. He told me to do this for 10 minutes. What it is, if you can get the first thoughts on paper, when you first wake up, it just clears the fog mm. and it allows then the creative stuff to come through. And what people don't teach people in the writing process, because writing is difficult because we spend most of our day moving around. And then we have to slow slow the machine down and physically write. So the trick is to yeah. physically write with a pen and paper. Don't do it on a computer. You want to labor through the writing because it focuses you to stay on the point. So when something comes up, for example, like if I'm writing in the morning and I'm like, I'm frustrated this morning, you ask yourself, well, why? Now you understand there's a higher power. Once you start to ask those questions, you start to co-create and the inspiration will start coming through you. So when I write, I don't really write. What I do is I allow myself to write. Mm. And I love that. Like, yeah. So what it is, is being, being in recovery, what happens if you give yourself 10 minutes a day to start writing and then what you don't do, which most people do is don't judge the writing, right? So whatever comes, if you feel there's some ideas you want to work on, pull them aside and say, I love that. That could be a chapter. Don't, don't worry about where it goes. Like I'm now with a big publisher going through Random House. I literally started writing the book two years ago. My sober birthday is April 16th, right? I looked at the edits now coming back from the publisher on my third edit and it's April 16th. I'm like, oh my God, I started this two years ago. Now, if someone would have told me two years yeah. later, I'd have a big publisher and I'd be like, that's crazy. 
and I'm going through the third edit, what I was told to get never told is it does take you two or three edits. We don't get taught that we're told to be perfect and it's yeah. done and it doesn't. Sometimes it takes six edits. So the trick is to get in the habit of just practice. Yeah. So if you start like writing every day, what's going to happen is the stories and all the stuff in the subconscious, your great stories of when you were growing up, when you're a kid, they'll come up. And then what you don't do is judge them. I don't like that. I like that. I like that. And you just get it all down first and then you shape it. Mm. I love that. And I, yeah. and I love the writing part. It's that editing yeah. part. I hate no, but <laughs> I, no, I'm like, no, once no. I write it, I want to be done with it. I don't want to like no. look over it and look over it and look over no, it. It's no, like, no, no, it doesn't no, even make yeah. sense anymore. <laughs> no, but you've got to fall in love with the editing. And that's what I learned. I do. Like, I, I do. Yeah. It's hard, but it's not because what happens is, like when I get edits back from like the editors I work with, the first thing is you take it personal. You don't, it's not, it's, it's the, it, my writing's about you. Yeah. I've got to figure out how to be of service to you. So if I can remove myself out of the personal and be, become an instrument, I ask, how do I write this? What's the story? And then when the editor gives me a note, I don't go, oh, I'm like, <laughs> I had to rewrite the book. I, I, had to, I wrote the book in, in, eight weeks, 62,000 words, rewrote wow. the whole book, rewrote the whole book from start to finish, line by line, word by word. Now I'm on the third edit, a line in it with a copywriter and the big publisher, right? Two years later. Yeah. And I've still got to go through, and I'm dyslexic and my brain, my, my the addict in me doesn't want to do that work. Yeah. But if you can, cause you've got 28 years, you've already got so much patience and time. It's you true. Sit, you do. You've got a, like a really great like foundation to just sit every day and just be like, put on a clock, 10 minutes. This is what will happen. You'll write for 10 minutes. You'll go down the rabbit hole. 30 minutes will go by. You're like, oh my God. Do you know what I mean? So have fun with it. I guarantee yeah. the book that you won't expect, you will write. Okay. I love that. And good advice. And you're right. You know, what's another 10 minutes of my morning? I get up early enough before my day starts. I can easily Done. squeeze and that in. Anything you need help with, I'll help you with. I love it. Yeah, I have right. a, an iPad. And so I've already got like the folders and the ideas and all this and that. Yeah. All, all you, I work off my iPad, throw it in a Word document, yeah. put it there, store them and just keep writing. And, and it'll, okay. it, the, don't, Stephen King is the greatest, right? You know what he said? Don't write the book. Let the book write itself. Oh, I like that. So you write, you just write. Okay. Every day, if you get up and exercise, you do CrossFit, right? Yep. If you do Fran or you do like a Cindy, what the trick is, you just stay there for 25 minutes and you do your Cindy. Five, five, five. Yep. You don't, you just go, I'm doing the five, 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 five pull-ups, five air squats, five push-ups. That's it, right? The yep. trick is if you just keep doing that, you know, some days are going to be faster than others. It's the consistency. You didn't get 28 years. You got 28 years by being consistent. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So just lay the bricks. I love it. Good. Well, that's on my agenda for this year. So I'm doing it. And I will definitely be reaching out if I hit, hit a block. I can help with you. Oh, and I'm there for you. All right. So this, this, you know where to find Angie. This has been an incredible, incredible episode of a dose of positivity you will be inspired you'll be educated and you'll be motivated and make sure you check out her podcast and check her out on all platforms angie thank you so much thank you thanks for having me great seeing you Absolutely. again bye honey
Bye. And that was your dose of positivity with Mike Diamond.